For those of you uh, joining us at home, I think we got the audio issues solved. Good. Because if, if we hadn't, you wouldn't be hearing what I was saying. Uh, and my hopes would not mean anything to you. You know, one of the things I both love and not so much love about my counselor, Thad, which I realized this week as I was thinking about him, uh, this month is the fifth anniversary of our starting our counseling relationship. So we've been together for some time now. I don't, what are you supposed to get your counselor on the fifth anniversary? What is, does anyone know what the... <laughs> I may. Anyway, I'm getting off track. Um, and it's so early in this sermon. But one of the things I love and not so much love about that is his astounding, almost supernatural ability to very lovingly point out, kind of like an iron fist in a velvet glove, my blind spots. The practical definition of a blind spot is simply something that you do not see. It's often really painful when a blind spot is exposed to us. In fact, it can bring us grief. At least that's been my experience. But once it's been exposed and faced, the result can be truly life-changing. In this week's gospel reading, Jesus lovingly, and I say lovingly, because he does it, well, first of all, the text d tells us that he looked at him and loved him, but he does it without a, even a, a, a scintilla of toxic shame. And, and he, he does it lovingly. He exposes a major blind spot in an exceptionally successful, powerful, and moral young man. Just one thing that's holding him back. But sadly, while its exposure does grieve him, it doesn't actually change him. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 26. So physical Bible or um, device, you may want to turn to it. Two phrases, I think, need to be framed here just to help kind of understand a little bit about what's happening in this passage. First of all, one that came clear to me, and I, I believe it was 1995 or 96 on my first trip to Israel when we were standing at a city gate and the tour guide pointed to a very small gate beside it that a tall person would even have to stoop to get through and he referred to it as the eye of the needle. And this is a gate that they would keep open at night after they had closed the city gate and a camel could get through it but only if it was completely unpacked and was kneeling to get through it. So it could get through it, but only with great difficulty. This is how they kept from being attacked by marauding hordes on camels. So possible, but only with a lot of intervention. The second thing is in the question that, that this man asked Jesus about inheriting eternal life, because we must not have this vision of eternal life being ethereal and disembodied, as we've often kind of been taught. Like, you know, an angel sitting on the edge of a cloud playing a harp, wishing he'd brought a magazine. 
But this kind of eternal life for him involved resurrection at the end of time, physical resurrection that was real and corporeal. It was something that was physical. Okay, so back to the story. I find one of the most interesting things in, is the response uh, in this story, not from the rich young man, but from the disciples. It says the disciples were exceedingly astonished. I mean, this guy comes to Jesus seeking answers. Jesus gives him an answer. He's grieved by it and walks away. And who's astonished? The disciples. I find this curious because the disciples as fishermen are what we might call blue-collar workers. And what you don't hear is, all right, sticking it to the man, down with the 1%, down with the rich. Finally, our day. They don't say that. What do they say instead? Well, if he can't be saved, how can we? They're actually genuinely concerned and just about as shaken as the young man is. This story is also recorded in Matthew and Luke, where we're told that he's rich, young, and powerful, likely a, a very successful businessman. But we're also told he's moral. He does good things, and he gets other people to, to want to do good things. And we see that when Jesus questions him. Have you defrauded anyone? Have you stolen from anyone? Have you taken from them what they deserve? And he answers, no, with all my wealth. I've never stolen. I've done justice, and I've been kind and fair. What would have been truly dramatic is if Jesus had been like, liar, j'accuse. Well, he didn't speak French, but you get the idea. But he doesn't do that. And he more or less does do that in some other situations. Which means if Jesus isn't doing that, and the disciples, which, by the way, this man would have been known in this community, the disciples would have said the same thing if he wasn't actually a good person. But clearly, this man was of substantial character and virtue, the exact opposite of the people the prophet Amos describes in the passage that we read today. And because he's righteous in terms of acts, in terms of what he does... That's what bothers the disciples. They say, wait a minute, if he's not worthy of the kingdom, then how can we be? So maybe this isn't about money at all, but about morality. And the disciples would naturally assume that morality counts for something. If you're a good person, if you've, if you've done right, then something should come to you in return, right? So what comes to light here is that apparently Jesus doesn't have a big problem with wealth and wealth creation per se, that in itself isn't the issue. This is really important because a lot of people think Jesus is specifically saying here there's something intrinsically wrong with money and wealth. And this passage becomes kind of prescriptive rather than descriptive. And yet he does say that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So what is he getting at? I believe it's this. Money in and of itself is not problematic. However, it does have a particular spiritual power to blind us to our need for anything beyond what it can provide. 
to blind us to our need for the gospel and for the kingdom of God. And therefore, nobody with riches is going to be able to make it unless God intervenes. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But then in the very next verse... He says something remarkable. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So he widens the scope beyond just the rich and says, hey, before you get ahead of yourself, everybody's here in trouble here. Everybody. Remember, the disciples are fishermen and they didn't have money. And yet they know very well by what Jesus says that they're in trouble too. Who then can be saved? So Jesus seems to be saying that while everyone's in trouble, money can be especially pernicious. Anyone who trusts in riches, which Jesus calls an idolatrous replacement for God in Matthew 6.24, cannot enter the kingdom of God. The disposition of his life is necessarily opposed to God's will. He says this, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. A disciple's loyalty simply cannot be divided. And when that is the case, the gospel gets pushed out. You can see this practically within some global and historical context. I don't don't know if you've ever heard of the the food app Eater, but it is... It is an app that you can open up in a city that you don't know, and it'll tell you how many people that also have this app are eating in particular restaurants. So you know which ones to go to. It's a heat map. It's kind of how uh, Google lets us know when traffic's going to be clogged up on the freeway. It sees everybody's going slow here, so the road turns red. But that's, it's just the, 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 kind of gathering of people in one particular place. But if you look at a heat map of all the world's major religions, besides Christianity over time, you see that they have remained pretty well concentrated near their points of origin, and certainly ethnically. They've all, especially in today's world, spread out somewhat, but remain predominantly concentrated regionally in their points of origin, except Christianity. And the unique thing about Christianity is that the center seems to always be on the move. Where did Christianity start? Jerusalem. But it didn't stay there for long because you know what happened? The barbaric, non-intellectual, uncouth, dirty, Hellenistic Gentiles got hold of Christianity and they brought it back to their homes. It moved to Rome, Greece, and North Africa, and it stayed there for centuries. But what happened then? These tribal people from Northern Europe, Goths, Visigoths, Angles, Saxons, Celts, people who were considered barbarians, people who were marginalized, the outsiders owned Christianity for themselves and brought it back to their homes. And so it spread to Europe and the West, and it stayed there for about a thousand years. But it's actually moving again. And this is what's so interesting. In the 21st century, even though Christianity is contracting slightly in the West at the moment, in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, it is exploding. It is growing at over 10 times the birth rate. Over 50% of Christians now live in the Southern Hemisphere. 
Right now, there are about two million Anglicans, including Episcopalians, in the United States, but there are over 18 million in Nigeria alone, almost 10 times that amount in just one country in Africa. In 1900, Africa was less than 2% Christian. A hundred years later, it was over 50% Christian. I myself was introduced to the Anglican Communion in southern Sudan in 2007. If you say today that you're Anglican or Roman Catholic, you're most likely to be a brown-skinned female. There's a migration, a moving of the center of Christianity happening right now. And this is important because it shows that over and over again, Christianity moves away from money, away from power, moves into the marginalized communities, to the outsider, to the disempowered. And I believe the predominant reason is the cross. Because in the cross, you have the loss, the giving up of power. And when Christianity gets into places of power and wealth, it suffers and stagnates because of one simple reality. You cannot serve two masters. Phenomenal statements of grace, truth, sin, forgiveness, the cross, those things can lose their heart-changing sway in the context of wealth and power. So go to someone who's comfortable financially, who has good education and a good job, and whose family isn't in crisis, and tell them they need the saving power of Jesus Christ, and you'll probably hear, no thanks, I'm good. Why? Because they don't feel the need for it. And Christianity has always moved to those who are needy, to those who are suffering, to those who are in pain, to those who without it have no hope. You won't seek a savior unless you need a savior. If you're holding on to wealth, you simply cannot hold on to the Savior. This is one of the reasons why consistent sacrificial giving, releasing your hold on money, is such a profoundly important spiritual discipline. The power of the cross comes only to those who recognize their needs. The scripture tells us this consistently. Money and power can, more than most things in life, blind you to that need. And money is this young man's blind spot. So if what I just said about not feeling the need for a savior is true, why does this young man who was inarguably rich and powerful and morally upright, I mean, he just looks incredibly good from the outside. <coughs> Pardon me. Why does he come to Jesus asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Anyone raised in Israel, would have already known the answer to that question. It's like asking anyone raised in Southern California, what's the best fast food hamburger in the world? Everyone knows that, Lauren. In-N-Out Burger. Ask any Jew of the time, and they would have told you, obey the law and you'll be right. Everyone would have known that. He would have known that. And look at the answer Jesus gives him in verse 19. It's the self-respecting Jewish answer. Obey the law. Do, do you steal? Do you murder? Do you do those things? And he says, I don't. So why the question? The key to the answer is in the question itself, I think. What must I do? And there's your answer. 
Because anyone who's doing and accomplishing in order to be right is going to find out that in spite of how great their lives might be, there's always something missing. It's never enough. There's going to be doubt. There's going to be insecurity. There's always going to be that nagging question, what must I do? That's the problem with the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and why Jesus said in Matthew 5.20 that our righteousness must exceed theirs. What is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Do the law and you'll be right. In other words, look good, be good. But Jesus says in Matthew 23.25 when he's delivering his seven woes, it says, have you ever noticed how easy it is to wash the outside of a cup and for the inside to still be filthy? I mean, literally, all you have to do is turn a cup over and you can wash the outside without ever touching the inside. So Jesus gives an answer that cuts right through, look good, be good. An answer that is, as the word of God always is, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, you want an answer? Here it is. You lack one thing. Verse 21, you lack one thing, go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I already know you're moral. Everybody here believes you're moral. You already do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. I know you know that. But if you're only avoiding the bad things, you're going to only look good on the outside. So if you want to get over that nagging sense that something's missing, you can't just address the outside, what you do. You have to address the very reasons you do good things. Everyone that's not a sociopath or a narcissist knows more or less what's right and wrong. Everyone knows that to be considered good, a, a good person, you have to address the bad things. But what if, if you like, want your life to truly change, in its orientation to the kingdom of God, God's rule and reign, you must change your relationship to the good things too. Very thankful to Tim Keller for phrasing it this way. Sin isn't just doing bad things. It's also making good things, ultimate things. Sin isn't just doing bad things. It's also making good things, ultimate things. Think about the good things in your life that you're holding on to right now that whisper in your ear that you are okay. Some good things or thing or things that have become in some way ultimate. By the way, in order to mine for those things, it is going to require cultivating community. Having people around you, putting people in your life that will talk to you about things that you do not see. Because what's the definition of a blind spot? You don't see it. I always know, and she hasn't done this for some time, but when my wife says to me, can I be your friend for just a minute? I know that I'm about to have something exposed in me. But the wounds of a friend are faithful. Kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 
We must cultivate friendships, relationships with people in our life that will point out these kinds of blind spots to us. Because I believe that what this text is actually saying to, to us is that you, I, we, we are this man. There's something deep down in our life that makes us intrinsically believe that we're okay. And it doesn't have to be money. You can make your family success and, and you can take your family success and turn it into spiritual success. You can take relational success or reputation and make it spiritual success. You can make professional success into spiritual success. What are those things for you? What are you especially self-satisfied or proud of? You might want to start there. You can do this work in community, and in fact should, as I just mentioned, but no one can do this work for you because they're specific to you. For this man, it's his money, and he couldn't let go, and so the ESV says he went away sorrowful. That's an important word because it's the same word that's used to describe Jesus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. It says that he sweat drops of blood, that he went into shock because of the depths of his grief and distress. He was experiencing ultimate dislocation. His entire identity was crumbling, his significance and his security, his relationship with his father, which was his all, was disintegrating before his eyes, and he was losing his very sense of self. So when the rich young man is told, give up his money, that's exactly how he felt. He was grieved because that was his center. That was his identity, the essence of who he was. You know, it is, it is possible to have God as your co-pilot, which, by the way, is a subordinate role, and God as your buddy, but not God as your Lord and Savior because something else is filling that space. And your hearts are restless. Money, family, education, friends, career, power, intellect, reputation. These are all good and necessary things, but they can also become ultimate things, blind spots that keep us from seeing our need for a Savior. We all have them to one degree or another, and they can run very, very deep. For those of us old enough, do you remember how the 1992 Clinton presidential campaign kept coming back to the same theme over and over again because of its fundamental importance. It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid, is what they said. Similarly, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly coming back to the same theme because of its fundamental importance. It's the heart, stupid. Though to be fair, he never called anyone stupid. Hey, you are what you love. It's the heart. It's the inside of the cup that needs to be washed. Or as was said in Indiana where we lived for 19 years, it's the inside of the cup that needs washed. 
Two weeks ago, Steve Angstrom preached from Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 48, a passage that deals with some of the things on the negative side that threaten the state of our hearts. Things that, to use the logic of the absurdity of righteousness in terms of what you do, would lead you to cut off or gouge out whatever part of your body was causing you to sin, your hand, your foot, your eye. No. It's the heart. Last week from, March, from Mark 10, 2-16, the passage dealt with hardness of heart that Jesus said is ultimately at the core of divorce. It's the heart. This week also from Mark 10, it's some of the things on the positive side. Money, family, educa- family education, friends, career, power, intellect, reputation, good things, really good things that capture our hearts and can far too easily without our even seeing them become ultimate things. Blind spots that keep us from fully experiencing the eternal kind of life that Jesus is inviting us into today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.